Hello and welcome back to MetaStation. Uh, we've missed you guys. We've been on hiatus and we're planning on coming back the beginning of August to pick back up with our season one podcast. But then we got a very exciting opportunity to interview the wonderful Tree Adams. So uh, that's what today is going to be. So I'm Claire. I have missed you guys very much. <laughs> I'm Erin. I haven't missed you guys at all (laughs) (laughs) we're playing good cop bad cop with you if you haven't noticed (laughs) i don't know why i'm not really i'm not really sure what what my plan was there but you know i just felt like you're like like, playing hard to get you want the fandom to come to you (laughs) i'm just like claire's making you feel a little too comfortable i think we need to dial it back (laughs) i spoil them i'm the nice parent (laughs) it's true that would totally be the truth as well if we had children I'd be the hard ass and you'd be the nice parent. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I will because you're, you're the order Muppet and I'm the chaos Muppet, right? Oh, yes. 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 That is correct. In the, in the universal breakdown of personalities. So, uh, without further ado, order Muppet and chaos Muppet bring you, um, a delightful interview with the hundred composer Tree Adams, who is a delight and who has, um, some awesome, insights to give us on uh, composing and constructing the sounds of season four. Enjoy. Enjoy. Hi, Tree. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. All good. Fun to be here. What's shaking? Not much. We got tons of questions for you. So many questions for you. (laughs) So just to give you kind of an idea of what we were thinking, uh, we uh, are sort of like brand as a hundred hundred podcast is we like to do like really deep dives into kind of specific stuff. So we picked out a few tracks from season four and we're just going to kind of like spend a little time talking about your process and all that stuff for each one, if that sounds cool. Sure. But uh to start out, I thought, you know, it might be helpful just to, uh you know, especially for our listeners who are not maybe familiar with the process of scoring a TV show. If you give, give us just like a quick rundown um, of like, what's the process on your end in terms of making each episode from start to finish? Like what's the beginning of the process for you? Um, you know, how do you go about building your score? Just so we have an idea of like, what is, what is a working day look like for you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it can vary, but typically, uh, what we do is before the season starts, we begin talk uh, story arcs and different characters, maybe some of the new dynamics that we'll see in a season, and you know where the tension is going to come from in the story, and that's a conversation between me and Jason Rothenberg, and then I will start, you know, brainstorming, coming up with some different ideas in terms of instrumentation or some different melodies that seem just at the script level to make sense and then i'll read the scripts Mm -hmm. so that we have like a little bit of you know clay to throw around before things really get down to you know picture um and then the editors will have that to play with as well and they'll have that as sort of a jumping off point for you know other pieces of like reference music that they may be looking for when they're crafting um their cut we get to the point um, where we sit down and we do a spotting session because now at this point, like say, you know, they've shot an episode, they've got 
you know, a picture cut that's close to locked or, or, or locked. And then the brain trust will all gather in a room in, in over an editorial. We'll sit there, watch the episode down, make notes in a timeline to the different time code that, you know, as it runs to, to establish where the different ins and outs of the music should be, where the music should take a turn. Um, we'll discuss, you know, where perhaps like somebody's theme might come in or, you know, uh, where, for instance, there may be a new tribe that arrives that needs their own flavor or something like that, you know, and, and it becomes like a little bit of, you know, the room talking, but really it's, it's, Primarily, it's a conversation between Jason and I, but also in that room, there are the editors, whoever they may be. Uh, there's usually like three or four different ones cycling. And then you've got uh, Tim Scanlon, who's the uh, one of the producers who kind of like he's the guy who really kind of runs the mix. And, um, you know, he's very hands on as well. Um, music editor Carly Barber, who's been there from the beginning, she's involved, too. So there's a lot of voices, you know, mm-hmm. and. I try and process what everybody's thinking and, and then I plot my course. Um, and what that involves is then, then I take what's called spotting notes, which are generated by the music editor, Carly, which basically lays out as a document that lays out all the ins and outs of all of where the music should start and, and, you know, tries to make some of the notes of what was said in the room. And then from there, I have to kind of like thread all these different needles. I've got to figure out, uh, you know, a way to accommodate the action, the emotion, the drama, um, and also to try and, you know, run thematic arcs that make sense with the characters and stuff like I've been talking about. And how that works is basically I go back to my studio. I've got, I've got a studio at home where I do a bit of writing and I got a studio uh, that's more of an office where we record live and I've got a few people working for me and I will sketch out, things with different instruments. Sometimes I'm using, you know, percussion instruments that I have laying around. Like I've got a lot of Middle Eastern instruments, like a, you know, a, a Persian daff or like a daduk, which is like a wind instrument or an oud, which is like a, an Egyptian string instrument. Um, I use some of that. I use samples of orchestral sounds, obviously like horns and strings, which we then will either replace or combine with, live musicians. Um, and I kind of frame out what I think is going to get the point across for each cue in a timeline. And each of those cues are called, you know, are done in a session and they each have an individual name and they might be like 30 or 40 cues in each episode. And then I send them over to my team to process them. And that involves like, bouncing the MIDI and turning it into audio and maybe uh, making a chart of, you know, doing a takedown of the various uh, melodies in there so that we can re-record, like, say, you know, a trumpet over it or a string ensemble. And then we go in and we do a bunch of recording in, um, in my studio. And uh, sometimes we'll have as many as, you know, 30 pieces in there or sometimes it will multi-track. Um, a smaller ensemble, maybe even like a quartet, like a string quartet could be helpful sometimes. And we just start piling on the different instrumentation that works. And I'll keep kind of a spreadsheet of what needs to be added. Um, and I have like somebody at my studio who keeps 
another spreadsheet of all the different themes and where to find all those melodies and stuff. And it's like an interesting, you know, collaborative process on one level, but I'm also like, in, in a sense, like a field general. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say, like, this is a tremendous exercise in coordination yeah. of like many, many moving parts. <laughs> and and, it, and it, there's a lot of talented people involved and, and you, you know, you have to kind of manage everybody and get get the best out of everybody. And then all the while, you know, the most important thing is that, you know, Jason's vision be realized, right? The right, yeah, right he wants to tell and when it when it works great it's it's exciting because yeah you know know, you feel you feel proud that like okay we 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 sort of pulled off this impossible thing in a very short amount of time and and um it's been really cool having warner brothers get behind it and and like release a soundtrack um in the past couple seasons because it's it's allowed us to like engage engage with the fans and and sort of you know, let the music kind of help tell the story a little bit. That's cool, you know? When I was thinking, when I was listening to the uh, season four soundtrack again this week, I was thinking that, you know, there's there's a bunch of stuff in the soundtrack that I think, you know, it was in the show, like everything everything that's on the soundtrack made it into the show in some form at some point or another. But there was a lot of stuff that I just never noticed or caught you know because it's like in the middle of a scene and there's other diegetic sound or there's dialogue or there's like stuff happening and one of the ones that jumped out at me was the octillion theme which i didn't really remember that much from the tv show but same thought yeah yeah but as it would as i was listening to it yesterday i was like oh my god this is gorgeous (laughs) like it was a crime that this was buried under the (laughs) in a tv show um so it's nice to be able to kind of to kind of be able to sit down and really, you know, pay attention to this work that like obviously is just like this humongous undertaking for a lot of people. So it's cool to be able to kind of like honor it. Well, and it's such an interesting thing too, like the world of scoring for film and TV, I would imagine in a way that's really different from, you know, creating music that is performed at a concert where the music is the sole thing you're focused on. You know, I think in a lot of ways with this, like when I'm watching the show, when, you know, when the music and all the production design elements are really working, you're never aware of them, like, distinctly as individual elements. You're just like, right. I'm I'm in this world, you know? Right. And um, so sort of pulling it out and, like, listening to that music, like, out of context, listening to it, like, on a playlist and thinking about, like, oh, yeah, this makes me feel this character's arc or this says something about their character's story, Um in like as a unit in itself is has been a really interesting exercise too and i think it's just such a testament to how cool the music is that it stands alone as music that like i know so many people in the fandom who just like listen to this music all the time you know yeah that's cool that's really cool to hear yeah yeah (laughs) in the process you know is is the the music and the sound effects and the dialogue all have to share the space right you know, I've typically tried to craft it so that, you know, the music will accommodate what's happening in the sound effects. For instance, like if there's a gigantic explosion, I right. know that that's going to pull out of my low end, right? But nevertheless, I will supply stuff in the lower register just in case, you know, they, they need that. You know what I mean? Because sometimes, right. sometimes you just never know how they're going to play it on the stage. 
how it's all going to fit together. I mean, that's something that the producer, Tim Scanlon, who runs the mix, that's what he does so masterfully is like he's able to integrate, you know, it's not just him. It's the guys mixing um, the show. Uh, Rick and, oh, my gosh, I'm drawing a blank because it's been a little while. But the, the two guys who mix the show, they do an amazing job. Tim Scanlon does an amazing job, like kind of like putting it together. And what happens is, for me, if if Charlie, who, who does the uh, the sound effects, if he's done an amazing job with the sound effects, it just makes the music look better. You know what I mean? If the, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. If it's all him, it, it, it's great. I'm like, okay, cool. You got that covered, man. And, you know, there's plenty of times where, you know, he's leaning on me because I'm taking care of, like, the ambience of some forest, you know, that he's put all these glow things in or whatever. And it's just kind of a a dance, you know, these two things, they have to gel together. And so you don't always hear all the elements that created. Um, so yeah, when you do separate out the music and say, okay, let's listen to this in its entirety, you do get to suddenly hear things that either got buried or even in some cases lost entirely perhaps in the mix because mm-hmm. we provide stems of everything separate. So, I mean, it is, it's like, like it's a really cool, uh, it's gotta be kind of like a cool, process to go through because like the music is a really you know it's it's a it's not extraneous it's a piece of the storytelling um and that's like a challenge to balance but also just like a really awesome thing like you said when it comes together one of the things that i also noticed too is um before we sort of dive into talking things piece by piece um that you mentioned briefly is you use an incredible range of different kinds of instruments um and i'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the the sort of I guess rainbow of different like musical colors that you work in um, by using all of these different like um, different instruments and different kind of like sound effects and musical tools and things like that. Well, I mean, the, the one of the the great things about a show like this is that because it's it's in an imagined future, you you have the freedom to kind of come up with whatever by like say it's a period piece we're in you know. 19th century uh, Italy, so you know you need to hear a mandolin and you need to have strings, and it's it's not that right, right. you're basically in you know imagination world, whatever you you feel like coming up with. So uh, the beauty of it is is both in terms of the kinds of melodies that you can come up with. You're not again, you're not uh, constrained by you know a- anything like culturally drawing you to a certain genre or anything. It's really just wide open. And then instrumentation wise, it's the same. And you can combine, you know, modern elements like contemporary pulses or just weird sound effecty things that you, you just kind of, you, you make up, you can get really creative and just forge some weird, you know, you could just be an alchemist in there and come yeah. up mm-hmm. with some <laughs> weird sense and make weird sounds. And then, you know, decide, Hey, let's, let's mix that with, you know, let's pair that with some instrument from some far corner of the world that you wouldn't expect there. And who knows what falls out. And that, that's, yeah. that's really cool. You know, we want to dive into that a little bit more deeply. We have like five different um, pieces of music or, or kind of um, uh, characters, arcs, things that are shaped by the music that we wanted to kind of talk through and really dig into like, the instrumentation choices for that particular piece of music, for that character sound, how it evolved over the season, things like that. So the first one we want to dive into is to talk about the cabbie theme. 
And uh, I guess my, I have a ton of questions about this, but I guess I wanted to sort of ask coming into the season, what did you and Jason talk about in terms of like where their relationship was going, what moments we're going to need, you know, a big sort of musical underpinning. Are there particular instruments or um, melodies or sound that you use to sort of create the music that shapes their relationship? Did it build off of some of the music that's been, you know, connected with them in the past? Like there was the Polis theme from last season. Um, sort of how, how I guess, did you sort of use the tools in your toolbox to kind of shape what was happening with their relationship? Like, basically, you, you, you've teed it up pretty well because you, you're, you're kind of right on. What what happened was, yeah, like the, in season three, there was something kind of happening between the two of them, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it actually, it might have been the first place that it, it reared its head was at the end of that polis scene where they're walking around like the wondrous, you know, sort of enchanted city. And then I think maybe Abby turns... I'm trying to remember. Abby turns to Kay and says, you are good at this or something like that. I can't you're, remember. You're, you're suited for this. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And, uh, and, and there was sort of a moment there. And then there was like, you know, a couple of other little moments along the way where, but they were quick. Like it was like, maybe they would, they would embrace and then go run off because danger was imminent or something. <laughs> <laughs> right, because it's the hundred. Yeah. You know, you can't have more than five seconds of something nice. <laughs> well, develop a love theme, like when you know the attack is like imminent. Uh, but right, <laughs> there was you know like a I remember like a, a string uh, motif that I was starting to use there, and then there was a cue. I remember it was called Hope. I can't remember what ah. the scene, but it was like. They, they were having like a, a maybe they were like I, I can't remember the scene. Was it was it the scene where she kisses his cheek and she says, "Let's call it hope." When he's like scared about Octavia and they're in yeah. they're in Med Bay and exactly. she's she's Bay. like yeah like like and she's kind of giving him like parenting advice because he's worried about Octavia and then they have their first little like cheek kiss. I'm I'm the hardcore cabbie shipper of the two of us, so I have all these moments are vivid in my memory. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. That one, that was kind of, to me, that was the moment that was like the real, the real sort of best cabbie moment in, um, in season three. So then I was like, okay, let's build on that a little bit. So then we kind of took in season four, you know, they have that moment where they're laying around in the bed the morning after, and we kind of, we worked on that same string motif. I actually did something originally that was pretty over the top, um, super emotional and or not emotional super kind of like romantic and jason's like dude it's too much <laughs> so reined it in and basically you know i think for those two you know it became like there was a little piano thing there was like kind of a traditional string motif and we did a little of that and then there was a couple of little uh ambient textures that i would use again and again but it, it you know it wasn't it wasn't an exotic thing for those two yeah. Right. Traditional. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure, uh, you know, where it's going this season. I mean, the thing with those two is that it's, there's the, there's the, the romance angle a little bit, but there's also this, this thing 
they're, they're the parents in a way, right? They're, yeah. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. So that's always been sort of another thing, which is that there's this sort of stoic, like the burden of leadership kind of thing too in their, in what we have to say about their characters, you know? Yeah. So I think maybe that, he never said it, but I think perhaps that was why Jason was like reluctant to like fully indulge the like full on romance. Yeah. Oh him. yeah. It was more to emphasize a little bit of like, cause that's there, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. But I think it's to, it's to convey the sort of austerity of the, of the role of, of leadership in a way. Yeah. And when you're saying it, like I hear that. Right. Yeah. Does that make sense? <laughs> Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And even in that moment, that like little bed moment, you know, it really is just like sort of a moment of kind of romance before the scene really transitions into a conversation about basically like, we don't get to have this because we have to go back. Yeah, like the politics comes right back into it. So that like, that makes a lot of sense for how the scene is structured where there's like a little, a little moment of reprieve and then it's back to like, but really we're at war all the time. Right. <laughs> so the next piece that we wanted to talk about a little bit was the the Raven stuff, in particular, um, Zero G Nightblood and Raven's plight. Um, and Zero G Nightblood, I think that's another one of my favorite pieces. And I and it it's interesting because um, you know it has a very different kind of like sound profile. It seems to me from a lot of the other stuff on the. Uh, on the soundtrack. And so, so basically we're just, uh, curious, like, how did you go about sort of pinning down the kind of like the, the soundscape of Becca's Island and, and, you know, c- figuring out how to convey, um, sort of through sound the difference of that space? Um, and then also, um, because another thing that's interesting about, especially Zero G Nightblood, if, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that's the piece that plays when, um, during Raven's first hallucination when she thinks she's floating. Is that right? Yeah. So there's a kind of like, so maybe I'm also curious to know how you, because it seems to me like there's, there's some tension in balancing sort of Raven's like emotional euphoria in that moment with the kind of like darker reality of what's happening to her. And that, that strikes me as like an interesting balance to try to strike. So, um, yeah. So I'm just, I'm just sort of curious to, to hear about your process for, for those scenes and for Raven. Well, you know, she, you know, is, is sort of in her own world in a lot of this season, you know, she's kind of, you know, I, I thought it made a lot of sense to sort of come up with almost like a separate sound for her. I mean, we sort of had that a little bit with, with Allie in, in season three where like, you know, like Raven was sort of like, she would get these sort of, you know, uh, electronic, you know, arpeggiated, like, like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, and so I thought, well, we should just go a step further with that. And, you know, so I went to, uh, I, I was, I was, playing with a synth that I never use on the show to try and see if I can, you know, come up with something that was really unique and that felt almost like uh, had a lonely quality to it that also Mm -hmm. would convey some of that sort of tech thing. And then we needed to imbue it with, as you said, the euphoria and, Mm -hmm. and then it also sort of cycles in and out of darkness um, which is like kind of a thing that happens all the time on the hundred. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> this is a nice moment. How do yeah. we get in the darkness? <laughs> stay there for so long, and then, and then really, um, you know, it, 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 then it gets like there's little bits of emotion that, that creep in here and there too. Uh, so it's, you know, it was it was really just a question of trying to find the right, you know, unique synth thing that was going to speak to her situation and, and i thought it was kind of cool it was definitely like it was one of those things where i sent it in and i was like i wonder how this is going to go over <laughs> yeah. right <Yeah. laughs> it didn't sound like everything else and i was like all right well is jason gonna bug out but i think i think everybody liked it and um i think i think it worked pretty well it served served the story pretty well i think it worked really well i mean i remember you know watching the the season and and the shift in the music when they kind of entered the lab, I think that was really effective, yeah. you know, like having a different sound associated with this, like really for the, for the show, you know, up until that point, like a really, really very different kind of setting than we'd really, than we'd seen anybody in. I thought like, I thought that was very effective and that and the, the sort of, you know, it's a very emotional space, but almost like uh, the aesthetic is more clinical, you know? So I thought that like, it's, it's all old and white, you know, it was like, yeah. Yeah, vibe, you know, completely. It's like a clean room vibe, you know. So that kind of that, like, you know, like you're saying, the arpeggiated synth kind of, you know, it really sort of. Um, I, I thought that that it made a nice contrast with like everybody back over and sort of like dirty, grubby polis. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like in a much more kind of organic setting. But uh, yeah. So the other one of the other questions we had that I was really interested in that you talked about a little bit in season three is um, so season four really expands the map in terms of the grounders, the um, getting to know a bunch of different clans and really bringing a bunch of different grounder characters to the forefront in a way where, you know, a lot more music and a lot more kind of substantial storyline revolves around them than they did before. So we wanted to talk a little bit about Ice Nation in particular, um, because there's so much great Ronan Echo music on the season four soundtrack. And so we had a bunch of different questions about that, one of which is um, what are the different kind of tools in your toolbox to, I mean, I guess really... um, does each clan have a sound? How do you sort of distinguish all the different sounds and particularly what sort of sets Ice Nation apart from the others? Yeah, well, I think in the case of, of Rome and um, uh, Echo, they actually got melodies mm-hmm. for, for those characters. So, you know, like Rome got this kind of, uh, you know, like almost like Roman kind of like... Um, uh, interval like these these fourths you know mm-hmm. this thing that, that we repeat a lot and then for Echo she got almost like the Darth Vader treatment yeah <laughs> you know it's like a military thing I really really did like her character I'm I'm a huge uh, Echo fan I kind of like her this season um, so that was you know, uniquely kind of character driven on the, you know, and, and yet they were in ice nation. And for ice nation, we had sort of, uh, a few different sounds in the palette. One was this, uh, middle Eastern sort of string 
something that we would use that, that would kind of give you like um I don't know, it just it just felt a little like a little off and dangerous. Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. for stings. And then we had a uh a synth thing that basically f- sort of feels like cascading icicles sort of up top. It's like a Oh yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Um and then we had something for the Ice Queen last season. I'm trying to remember mm-hmm. I think she got I think she got a melody and then there was also that same sort of rolling icicle kind of thing that we would do up top. So I don't know, it, it's a subtle thing and it sort of evolves sometimes within the the needs of the scene, you know. Mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. you have you know, like a thing in the palette that's that's dangerous, but it's really just you know, two people scheming, it, it doesn't feel appropriate. Or sometimes if something's kind of ambient, it doesn't work when you come in with, with like a you know, a full battle scene. Um, right, right. <laughs> to have like a, a handful of items you'll throw at it. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> did you um, did you map out like um, for, the, for the, because we, we sort of met so many more of the Grounder clans this season than we've met before. Um, was there a point where it was kind of like, okay, this clan has a sound, this clan has a sound for all of the sort of more minor ones, or was it more focused on like, this is Roan's character, this is Luna's character, this is Lincoln's character, this is Ilian's character, and more sort of driven by that? Or was, is there somewhere like on your spreadsheet, like a 13 clan, you know, like musical breakdown of what their different sounds are? <laughs> We've gone back and forth about it so many times because it's like if you score everything that's happening in every scene, it's just going to be a freaking carnival. Of- yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, you know, it is sometimes, yes, every every clan has, has a, a certain sonic palette, and we do try and uh, emphasize that. Again, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes I'll bring it in, it shows up at the mix, and no one's going to use it. Uh, right. You know, for the, um, you know, Luna's, what are they called? The, the, the water. Oh, the boat, the boat people. Boat people, right. Uh, sorry, I'm, I need, I need more coffee here. <laughs> for, for, you know, for, for those guys, there's like a couple of sounds that sort of go for the boat people that are sort of, they're, mm-hmm. they're kind of watery. They're like, they're, I don't know. There's like an undulating low thing that goes like wow, 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 wow. Right, right. Like a little bit like a sound traveling through water. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some, some, some sort of effect like that. To yeah. Me, and it, I was like, well, this will work, you know. And it, but it's down low, right? So there's certain situations mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. maybe they're not going to use what I have down low. So you know, just translate, right? Um, and then we had a melody for Luna that was kind of a majestic melody that we reprise all the time um so that was sort of like yeah there was two different distinct synths and a horn melody for those guys right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know for for your basic grounders i mean like there's always been this thing for like having a, a percussive like an ethnic percussive thing like there's a lot of times where you hear you know the grounders like you know, they're, they're marching and there's just like, you know, big battle drums. So that's always been right. an inherent thing. But so it's, it's right. been hard sometimes to, to make some of the different, uh, clans like distinct, you know, but 
I mean, we do have we do have that on the spreadsheet. Yes. Ah, I knew it. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I wanted to know. I was like, just is it is it mapped out somewhere? <laughs> so we kind of sticking with the the sounds for characters. Um, we wanted to talk about Octavia because she oh, had yeah. a huge season. Uh, and she added so, I mean, like, there's so much different stuff happening with Octavia. You know, like, a lot of the cast said that, that Octavia was, like, kind of their favorite arc last season because she just, you know, she kind of went from literally rock bottom, falling <laughs> off that cliff, you know, <laughs> to, to leading almost every single yeah. remaining human. Um, so, <laughs> so I just wanted to, to ask you to talk a little bit about, you know, what, what, in your mind, how has Octavia's, sounds um changed or evolved over two seasons um and and um i mean you know part of, a big part of her arc is that she's kind of she as a character embodies the the ways that grounders and sky crew can sort of merge and come together as a people so we we're curious to know if that sort of merger of grounder and sky crew sounds is something that you thought about as you were scoring for her and how you tried to kind of like convey that. And um, yeah. So just, just generally the Octavia. <laughs> of it all. I, I didn't really think of it in those terms. I mean, but that is an interesting way to look at it. Look at it as the merging of sky crew and, and grounder. I, I think in, in season three, she was sort of more uh, brought out musically in her relation to other people, you know, her relation mm -hmm. to Lincoln, you know, there was like a, a romantic thing there in her relation to um, even, you know, Bellamy and, and they had like kind of sibling mm -hmm. things. Um, and in season four, she obviously has a lot more agency. So we're talking about, um, right. You know, there's the treacherous side where basically she becomes, uh, you know, an assassin. And so I kind of have this, you know, uh, little motif that is just kind of a little bit dangerous sounding and um, that we would repeat a lot. And then there would be situations where, you know, she was in all out war with people and, you know, killing people. And then there's this horn line that goes with her. And then, there's this thing with uh, Ilion, and that takes on its own life. Um, you know, I think that one, that one cue, Octillion, became like, that was just like its own little sort of overwrought piece. But there's this little high-string melody that you first hear when they're, I think it's that same episode, it's in uh, 407, when they're in the woods. Mm -hmm. she, she realizes someone's following her, and it's him. And it's like... It's like this little high violin thing that kind of keeps kind of popping its head up. That becomes kind of their thing. And then I guess, you know, when she's sort of anointed, you know, as like, you know, the leader, um, then she gets her own kind of new regal sound. And so I think we'll see where that goes this next season. I mean, that I have a feeling that's going to be a big part of something we're going to have to expand on, you know. Yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> but I mean, it was a cool thing for her this season because she got a lot. She had a lot of agency. Yeah, yeah. I I also like the um 
what was the track called? There's a there's a track for the relationship, a sibling bond or something like that. That was which is like also kind of yeah. like gentle string theme uh, for which I thought was like a nice, it's like almost surprisingly delicate for the Blake siblings, considering how at odds they've been. But I think sort of expresses that like underlying tenderness that they have such a hard time accessing. Well, it was a huge storyline this season, you know, because he betrayed her and then he made good on it and then she realized it. And like, it's a, it's a thing that I think it's been a wonderful aspect of the, of the season to be able to kind of like bring that out. Actually, there's, there's a little bit of a flavor. I can't, I can't really sing it to you cause it's not a melody, but it's like a, there's these like reversed, um, mallets. Like it's like a mallet line that, that I then reversed and it goes like, <laughs> and it's, and, so that's not going to work because I can only see one <laughs> melody line at a time. Um, essentially, that's going to be a thing that, like, you heard early on when Octavia and Bellamy were, were, you know, would be talking to each other in season three, and then it's kind of it feathers in in season four as well. Cool. So it's like a little like sibling kind of sibling sound. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's what we do. It's like you know, you, you think, okay, yeah, they'll just get a little texture, and then like as something expands and grows you're like all right well i'll carry that through so now it needs you know a full-on motif for now yeah. yeah that's a good transition into our our last piece which i'll and i'll let aaron ask you about that but i guess just sort of as a as a leading question for that i wanted can you talk a little bit more about the way the themes kind of carry over from season to season i know we've got a lot of things in season four that sort of built off of like you said you know riffs or themes or instrumentation choices that you made in season three so are you are sort of already thinking a little bit about how some of these things may play into what you do for season five? Yeah. I mean, you know, the question for me still is like, where is season five going? I mean, I've written, right, right, right. I've written <laughs> one script and I think, you know, we, uh, we were just working on this uh, trailer and, uh, you know, I, I've yet to kind of have the, the big conversation with, with Jason about the arc of things and, mm-hmm. You know, so I, it'll be interesting to kind of know where it's going, and then I have to, yeah, of course, I got to be ready with everything we've already done, and just you know, right, yeah, yeah. Well, the the last one that we wanted to talk to you about was "I See You," which is, of course, the piece that plays over the time jump at the very, very end of season four, and kind of leads into that cliffhanger. And, and I was, I'm curious about that one too, because you know, partly like we were saying just in terms of like, how do you score a cliffhanger? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> thinking forward to, um, you know, as the thing that is jumping into the next season. But also I'm just sort of curious, again, going back to instrumentation, I think I, it's an interesting track because one thing that jumped out at me as I was listening to it, and I remember this, I even noticed this when I was watching it, is that what one thing that's really prominent in that um, piece is like a strummed guitar. And that's not yeah. a sound that we've really heard in, on the hundred before. That isn't really a part of, or hasn't palette. really been a part of the palette before. So I'm curious about like, you know, what that strummed guitar, um, represents for you in terms of the time jumper or, you know, what, what kind of sonic choices did you make or what in, went into making the choices about like, this is six years later. This is a different Clark. You know, she's got like essentially a kid now. She's got this, this, you know, little girl that she's caring for. She's looking forward and looking back, you know, and, and then of course we have to, they have to like make that transition into the boom, you know, <laughs> final cliffhanger. <laughs> I think, I think it, it, 
because it was a time jump and because it's, it's this completely out of left field situation, right? That she's, that, that you just described. Like, you had to come up with, you know, something that had a little bit of like warmth to it that was like just a little bit, yeah, a little different. And it gives you the feeling that like, oh, like everything turned out all right. Yeah, yeah. It definitely gives you that like, hey, she's taking a nap, you know, yeah. like everything's cool. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it was sort of like, I don't know, it was pretty, it was sweet, it was soothing in a way. And then, and then, yeah, it kind of, I think it sets up the moment of the, you know, the bad guy arriving, you know, the, the ship. Right. Really yeah. Well, I think the contrast. So that was, that was all, you know, and it, and it was, look, I'm a guitar player. I, I, you know, I, I rarely pick up a guitar on uh, the hundred at all. Once in a while, I'll use it in a kind of a, you know, an ambient kind of way, um, like an effect or even occasionally just some heavy guitar, either rhythm or, or just kind of like, big chords like washed underneath what you're hearing, but it's never really the thing that's driving a cue. Certainly never really an acoustic guitar. So yeah, it was just fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it is. I mean, it was, again, I, I, it was, it sounded fun. Um, were there, were there any like themes from earlier in the season that you folded into that piece or was this kind of like you, like, you know, starting fresh new world, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's own thing. I think it was its own little, you know, little chapter. Like, like, like the show almost ended before that little, you know, like the season ended kind of. Yeah, it's sort of an epilogue. Like, it has that feel to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then we were like, okay, here. And, and the funny thing for me is, like, I don't even know what's coming. Like, when I first got the cut and I looked at the ship, I mean, I got a, a cut that wasn't locked, you know, an early cut before we all met. And I looked at it. And, and it, it didn't have the writing on the ship. Oh, so you didn't know what it was. And so I was, I, I think I called in the production office and I was like, cause it's, it, it had a note, like, you know, add the, the writing later. So I can't remember. But I called in the production office to be like, what does it say on the ship? Like, what is that? Like, what is arriving? <laughs> right. <laughs> Supplies, right? It could be like, like yeah. Bellamy's back. It could, I don't know what. It, right, 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 right. <laughs> it's kind of important to know. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but then I was like, okay, yeah, it's on. This is, <laughs> so, I mean, we'll see what happens this season five. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, and it'll be sort of funny too. You're talking about like, well, the grounders had a piano. I, I think this is from another interview. I listened to your interview with Selena Wilkin from Hypable from a few months back. Just like prep and, you know, and, and she's talking to you about grounder music and they have all these leftover instruments from various places and those are all, have all been incinerated now, uh, in Prime Fire. So it'll be interesting <laughs> to see, you know, like if, if, uh, Jason gives you any sort of like maybe, I don't know, maybe there's instruments in the, in the bunker you can right, right. <laughs> build off of, but <laughs> maybe not. If they have any, if there's any live music to be done on the show, I don't know. Yeah. What are they going to? Yeah. And they're going to play a leaf or something. <laughs> just going to have to, yeah, they're playing it. Oh, hey, you know, you, you can, you can, um, put a blade of grass between your thumbs and make that like really high pitched noise. Exactly. So you could use that. <laughs> <laughs> Drum on the rover. I don't know. <laughs> so, well, so you mentioned this a little bit right at the beginning. 
And then, and you mentioned this in other interviews too before about just what it's like to create music for a show that has a fandom that's this engaged in kind of like diving deep into the storytelling, interacting with you, interacting with the music. So we were really curious, like, are there ways where engaging with the fans or conversations with the fans or sort of absorbing how they watch the show has like shaped the way you work has it like inspired or influenced the music and just kind of like what your relationship with the fandom you know now that you're two seasons in has sort of evolved to be well i think on one level knowing that there are people paying attention has made it you know all the more important for me to be organized about it and to try because it's very hard to keep things from you know ending up where they don't belong because if if you're an editor, you don't have the spreadsheet. You don't even necessarily know what themes I'm working with. It all just sort of sounds like, okay, this is dark. Okay, this is majestic. Okay, this is romantic. So, like, I can't tell you how many times, you know, and and their their job is to, to put together the best picture they can and just tell the right story with it. They don't have to deal with my nightmare of making it all work thematically. Right. So, right. <laughs> how many times, like I look at a cut and it's like a big romantic scene and it's got like the Klexa theme on it, but it's like, you know, somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, no, 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 no that's not going to fly. <laughs> okay. Guys, like if, if, if we air this, there will be death threats. Yeah. Right. Seriously. <laughs> but it's like, so I know, I know that I have to like, you know, make sure that certain things are are going in the right places. And it's hard, it's hard to keep it there, you know? And right. to, to the credit of, you know, all of the team involved, you know, they, they've allowed me to kind of like create this sort of elaborate matrix and encouraged it and, you know, have been supportive in, in that effort. Um, and I think it's, it's been good because it's helped, you know, with the story, it's made the story stronger mm-hmm. Um, by having this little substrata to support it. And I think that, um, it's cool because all of the, all of the people who are engaged, all the fans, they're in on the, you know, they're in on what's happening. They're in, they know, they know, you know, on the inside, like what we're, what we're doing with the music, you know, they yeah. can be in on the joke or whatever it is. Like they kind of get, they get what we're, what we're working with. And that makes it, really fun it's a fun way to communicate you know and i i feel like it's been a an honor to be able to kind of like jump in and do this and have people that engage with the music i I work on plenty of other uh shows or movies where uh there is not this kind of engagement and, and music is really just sort of an obedient master to like whatever happens like moment to moment throughout the scene and and it's it's it works, you know. And, you know, not every show demands this, and uh, right. So it's it's a real it's a real um, honor to to have that challenge. So I'm enjoying it, and you know, once in a while I'll get I'll get some fans who who uh, get upset about something. You know, I remember there was um, there was a moment where with Bellamy and Clark, you know, they have this relationship that is, you know, many people like want it to be romantic. Many people like are upset about it being potentially romantic, but regardless, I'm not focused on that as much as I'm focused on, you know, they share this bond from the mm-hmm. beginning. They're kind of the, 
the co-leaders, you know, the Sky Crew younger set there, right? Mm-hmm. And they care for one another deeply. And, you know, so there's a, this sort of emotional thing that they have. It could be platonic or not. I'm not going to speak to that. But sometimes, like, when I put this emotional cue on those two, some people get upset about it. And I remember there was a scene in uh, season four where Clark is making the list. And oh yeah, yeah. early on in that scene, she's just having, like, a reflective moment by herself. I think Bellamy may be even asleep. Yes. Yeah, he's, like, sleeping yeah. on the couch. And, you know, I, I hint at the Klexa motif for a second on a harp. You know, and it was just sort of like, it made sense to me. She was just thinking about her life and the stuff she's been through and the the burden of leadership. And mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. was like a thing that she had gotten from Lexa. Mm-hmm. Stuff she'd learned from Lexa or like had experienced with Lexa. So it just felt right to me. I was like, I fell into that for a second mm-hmm. and then goes into the list. And then later Bellamy wakes up and then they have a little bit of an emotional moment together. Then mm-hmm. literally I had people freaking out on me like that. I'm putting the Klexa theme over the Balark theme. And I'm like, <laughs> I guess I'm working the picture. I'm trying to, you know, <laughs> I, I would literally fight you. You're like, dude, I'm just trying to make some music. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, it is possible for a single person to care about more than one person right. at the same time. You know, like she can, she is capable of thinking about both those people in that scene, you know, and like it's logical. And if the music suggests that, then like, yeah, <laughs> let's yeah. all just calm down. <laughs> she, she's a complicated character and that's part of what makes her a compelling character. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know. It, it's nice to... uh you know, for me to have the freedom to try and, you know, explore all the different sides. But, it, you know, it's gotten, I mean, there was all of this controversy with the, the Klexa thing. And I don't want to speak to any of that. But, you know, I mean, I really enjoyed writing music for that relationship. And I loved that theme we had for them. And, you know, it's, it's all I can do. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and, hey, you know, like, the other thing is it's part of the story. Sometimes people get upset that there are things that are part of the story that are part of the story, but you know, they're part of the story and your job is to write music for the story. So (laughs) I wouldn't have thought this needed to be said, but just so it said tree is not in charge of the story. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Don't yell at tree. If you don't like the plot. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So um, we wanted to make sure before, before you got to go, we want to talk a little bit about, uh, about um, other projects, and we know that um, you just published a, a, a comic book or a graphic novel, um, excuse me, called Dusk Riders uh, that I think, I believe you co-wrote, and there's also a soundtrack with that, and I, I would just really love to hear you talk a little bit about what's it about, where can people find it, and then also I'm really curious, you know, like you've spent years and years now writing music to support other people's story. Um, so what's it like to write music for your own story for once, you know, so you, you get to be the one to be like, uh, uh-uh, this cue goes with this and nobody can say no. <laughs> well, I think that was how it started was basically, you know, I, I had been writing 
you know, I had had a little bit of success with the show Californication and I was getting hired to sort of score again and again, these kind of guitar scores. And I was getting a little sick of doing the same sound. And I had the opportunity to work on this show, The Middleman with Javier Grigio Mark Swatch, who actually was a writer on the hundred for a while. And his show, The Middleman was based on a graphic novel. And I was really enjoying that. And this is about seven or eight years ago. And I had always been a fan of, of the genre of graphic novels and comics when I was a kid. And, and so I thought to myself, well, you know, maybe when I get a little downtime between gigs, I'll write the story that I wish I could score. And then we'll just see where that goes. So then, you know, I, I, I framed out this idea for a story. Uh, I had a buddy, Chris Farber, who helped me sort of flesh out you know, he, he's like a screenwriter, helped me flesh out some of the, the backstory and, you know, some of the motivation for things in the world. And then I just kind of blazed forward and wrote this six issue arc for these characters and wrote songs and score for that world. And then I think about a year ago or so, um, I met this woman, uh, Yuka Kobayashi, actually, who's a friend of Sabrina Hutchinson's, my, my dear pal and publicist. And Yuka, uh, had worked for Stan Lee and then kind of knew people in that world. She hooked me up with someone, uh, this guy, Ramon Govea, who knew kind of how to get this made. And then he introduced me to Josh Zimmerman, the artist who, who drew it and did a magnificent job with that. And, uh, you know, we're just kind of doing one issue at a time and, and releasing music to go with each issue. So we, the first one was, uh, you know, songs and score and it's available on, um, iTunes and on the website, deskwriterscomic.com. And, you know, it, actually, if you're a fan of the hundred, you probably would like this, this music. It's, it's kind of in that world as well. I was going to say, like listening to some of the, the soundtrack, cause it, well, and it's also sort of like a little bit of a post-apocalyptic thing, right? So there's a kind of like, it's in the future and there's this, um, you know, earth is kind of like a little bit of a dystopia and I don't want to give away too much, but there was one track that kind of, I think it's like maybe set to like one of the, the sort of tech pieces of the story, um, that sound a little bit like reminiscent of Becca's Island, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Raven sort of stuff. Yeah, and then but then there's also a couple of you know there's a couple of songs that are just like rock songs. Mm -hmm. It sounds like yeah, well it's just you know all of my worlds colliding. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, well, I mean, anything you want to do, right? (laughs) It's literally like I started writing this like way before I ever even got on the hundred, and there is some similar stuff to what's on the hundred, which kind of speaks how much yeah, like how psyched I am to be on the hundred because it's exactly. I was going to say, like, which came first, but it's kind of cool that, you know, you found you you found a way to, like, sort of bring together a bunch of different aspects of stuff you're interested in doing. And, like, you know, working on The 100 can maybe sort of help you with think of, like, ideas for the comic and vice versa. And, yeah, it's, and also just kind of cool the way that, like, you know, you're in the zeitgeist together, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's weird that, I mean, literally, like, I came up with this idea seven or eight years ago, it's got a very strong female lead. It's not post-apocalyptic, but it is dystopian. It's like Earth is dying. That's, uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, but this this also has a little bit more, there's a, uh, 
there's a little bit more of a fantasy component to it. But, mm. you know, it's, 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 you know, Earth is dying. There's this gal, Dublin Stinson. She's like the toughest chick on the planet. Uh, her father is a scientist. He dies mysteriously. Her twin sister gets murdered. And then Dublin goes out and forms like a three-man army called the Dusk Riders. Um, there's this corporate warlord, Percival, who's colonized a distant planet and organized an exodus for the rich and powerful. And so he's kind of turned Earth into a service planet. And the Dusk Riders are trying to continue uh, Dublin's father's work, uh, his scientific work, with this controversial like new energy source called the Ralveron. Um, and the Ralveron is able to kind of create a sustainable energy source. So it's, it's a way to, to, to resurrect Earth. But Percival, of course, has ordered the appropriation of the Ralveron and has his own plans to use it to power Terranox. And uh, as the Dusk Riders get closer to Percival and the Ralveron, they uncover a dark secret. And it's, you know, just sort of exciting kind of international uh you know, battle in a dystopian earth with this corporate warlord. Super fun. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I was going to say, I like, I really like the way that it also kind of like, it, it sort of plays off an angle of sustainability and climate change. You know, like part of the issue with earth is, is the problem of energy and, you know, and finding sources of energy. And, you know, I noticed when I was reading through it today that the, the bad guy, Percival, you know, like he's, he, he seems to be out like, on what looks kind of like an oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico. Is that kind of, uh, um, the Gulf off of Louisiana. Louisiana. Yeah. Which is sort of perfect in terms of, if you think about like, you know, it's like a, such a great emblem of like, here's the guy, the guy who wants to like shut down the possibility of like clean, sustainable energy source for everyone sitting out there in the Gulf, you know, like polluted by oil companies. <laughs> like, I just thought that was like a really cool sort of, you know, like a, a kind of like, gesture to contemporary issues within this dystopian fantasy sci-fi world. Well, that's, that's one of my favorite things about sci-fi is it gives you this opportunity to like say something about the world we're living in now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In an yeah. Future. I mean, I think Jason does it a lot on the hundred, you know, yeah. I mean, a lot of what we saw in season four was like about immigration. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, you know, I mean, there was episodes in there that were like, you know, in my mind, they were like travel ban. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's stuff like going on all the time in these, you know. And if you're thinking forward about, you know, one of the problems of climate change is it does have to do with, you know, places on Earth becoming unlivable and people having to relocate and then the, the resource challenges that come with that, you know, like that's basically the story of season four right there. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> it's all alarmingly realistic. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Tree, for taking some time to talk for us. This was Appreciate really fun. It's been, it's been fun chatting and uh, thanks for, thanks for having me. Yeah. We're looking Absolutely. forward to hearing what you do for season five. <laughs> yes. And everybody, um, you can find Dusk Riders at duskriderscomic.com and you can find Tree at Tree Adams on Twitter, I believe, if that's correct. Yep. And treeadams.com. And thank you so much, Tree. We look forward to all of your future work. And thank you so much for working so hard to make an awesome soundtrack for the show. We appreciate it. We, we appreciate you so much. It's a huge job and you do great. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Bye. Thanks so much. Bye.